Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Emily's Book Club. For any new listeners, my name is Emily Burgess, and I'm an 18-year-old high school senior based in upstate New York. When I'm not doing schoolwork or dancing ballet, I love to read books, so this podcast is a wonderful excuse for me to talk about something I love with people I love. New episodes are released on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and each features at least one special guest to talk about a novel or anthology. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Julia Zacker onto the pod to discuss Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. Zacker recommended this book to me a couple years ago, and to this day, it's one of the most thought-provoking books I've ever read. The protagonist of The Hate You Give, Star Carter, is trapped between two worlds, her predominantly Black neighborhood, Garden Heights, and her predominantly white school, Williamson Prep. A police brutality incident within her Garden Heights community thrusts Star into the spotlight of activism and further pressures her to decide between her two selves. While I readily acknowledge that the joy of surprise is essential to the reading experience, I cannot guarantee that there will not be spoilers from this point of the episode on. If you're so inclined, feel free to pause here, read the book, and cycle back later. With all that being said, we are more than ready to welcome today's guest, Julia Zacker. Zacher, thank you so much for meeting with me. How are you? I am good. How are you? It's such a delight to be here with you today. Oh, well, I feel honored that you're making the time for me. Um, I'm doing pretty well and I'm excited to talk about The Hate You Give. So before we begin a more focused discussion of The Hate You Give, I have a few macroscopic questions. Clearly, this is a book you recommend to others as you recommended it to me. What about the novel resonates with you to the point of recommending it to someone else? The novel truly, I think, so the novel for me really just shows the black experience, you know, like there's no other way to put it. And, you know, as a black person, I can't say that I know every single black person's experience and stuff like that. But for me, it really just hit home. You know, it was a girl my age, you know, going to a school similar to ours and just being black. And I was, I was truly, truly just amazed by her writing and everything. And I think that even not being a person of color, you know, I think it's first of all important for people who aren't people of color to read stuff like that. And I think just like, you know, Star was a girl our age and I think it really resonates in general of the stuff she was going through. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know that as a white person, there's a lot that I will just never understand. I, no matter how hard I try, I'll never get it. But The Hate You Give did awaken me to some things and I thought it was a really great book. So thank you for recommending it. Um, how did the novel change you after reading it, if at all? I think it really just, at the age, I don't know, I think it was maybe a freshman that I started reading it. I don't know when I recommended it to you, but I feel like Miss Layden was still there. So definitely like freshman E type year. Um, I think for me, you know, I was really struggling because I felt really alone you know, in the world. And I was like, is anybody else having these problems that I'm experiencing? Or just having trouble with like racial identity and groups and stuff like that. And through this book and through Star's experiences, just like little stuff, you know, like 
when she went to the party and they were like, oh, Miss Private Girl and stuff like, like Private School Girl and stuff like that. I think it really showed that, hey, this isn't just a singular problem. Like a lot of people experience in our category of like being a black person struggle with certain aspects that it's not just me, you know, like it's, it's the entire, <laughs> like a lot of people experience it. So I think that's where it really helped, especially as like a youngin at that age, you know? Yeah, I think that's one of the best things about books in general is that it can make everybody feel a lot less alone because the best authors capture those feelings so well. Yes. All right. Well, police brutality is undoubtedly one of the main themes of the book. Grief, particularly for Star, also plays a big role in the novel. Star is a firsthand eyewitness to the unjust murder of her childhood friend, Khalil. I think that's how you say it. But even before that, another childhood friend, Natasha, was murdered in a drive-by shooting years earlier. On the murder of Khalil, Starr says, quote, I always said that if I saw it happen to someone, I would have the loudest voice, making sure the world knew what went down. Do you think that Starr would have been able to properly grieve and move on from the crime she witnessed without her activism? And what can readers take away from Starr's grieving process? Okay, so I don't think she would have been able to properly grieve, obviously, without her activism, because I think her activism was a part of her grief, you know? She, in order, I don't want to almost say to get over it, but in order to accept what happened and deal with it, she had to find her voice. And what was the second question? Sorry. <laughs> oh, no problem. What can readers take from Star's grieving process? Oh, so from this grieving process, I think the big thing, at least that I took away from it, is that it's all about voice, you know? Mm-hmm. So when we're at a difficult situation like this, you know, she's experiencing so much. For a while there, she was quiet, right? She was struggling to find her voice, you know, so many, so many people were saying different things, you know, it was so much. And I think at the end of the, the day, in order to get through everything she had to find a voice and I think we can all take a big lesson from that because I know even like thinking right now there are times that you know I know I could have been louder I could have probably helped people better and I do I do feel grief about those times because I'm like you know if only I had done this but I think it really takes a certain amount of courage and a certain person to be able to find their voice and that is what we should all take away from this. You need a voice in order to achieve anything, whether it's to get over your grief, whether it's to bring awareness, you need a voice. Yeah, I think a lot of people try to get over emotions by sequestering them away and ignoring them. And I think Star tried to do that for a lot of the time, like when she was testifying for the trial, it was anonymous and it didn't really lose its anonymity until the um, verdict came out. So I think what we can take from this is that it's not always, I feel like most of the times hiding your feelings away doesn't work. And that, and like you said, she'll never get over it, but you need to do certain things to move on. And speaking up, I think um, probably made her feel better because I think Kala would have been proud. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. 
So Tupac is a clear influence on the book. The author has mentioned that Star's name was derived from a Tupac song, and the title of the novel, The Hate You Give, stems from Tupac's song, Thug for Life. I'd like to talk about that song specifically. While discussing the song with Star, Khalil says, quote, meaning what society give us as youth, it bites them in the ass when we wild out, end quote. What does Khalil mean by this? Basically what he's saying is that from the moment a black child is born, like it's really, it's, it's really like, from the moment a black child is born, we have a label on our heads, you know? We are, I did my art project about this, you know, we are, we are seen almost as animalistic, whether it be male, whether it be female, and I don't care whether this child is light-skinned, dark-skinned, mm -hmm. you know, almost white. From the moment we are something other than white, we are seen as the other, right? And society treats us as the other. And then society expects us to not act like the other. But mm -hmm. we do because this entire time society has been othering us, you know? So basically what he was saying is from the moment we were born, treat us like this and then it bites you in the ass because you're like why are we why are they why are these black people acting like this you know why are they getting loud why are why are they getting annoyed why is there so much crime why is there so much poverty it's because this is generational you know generational racism mm -hmm. that has affected us so greatly yeah so going back to your art project can you talk a little bit more about that like what was the motivation for that and what did it end up being like um so I've always obviously been interested in the, the black experience and the whole George Floyd thing definitely sparked a little bit more. Cause I was like, I was struggling. I was like, do I do the black experience or do I do the female experience? And in some of my pieces, I took the root of like the black female experience because I think that's a lot of times not like seen in the media, we, yeah. you know? We always see, you know, that there's police brutality a lot of times towards uh, black males. And, but I think a lot of times black females experience a lot too that mm -hmm. gets hushed away. But yeah, I was just trying to really bring light to some of the aspects that have been on my mind about the black culture. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. So that's, that's really cool. Thank you. So now cycling back a little bit more focused on the hate you give. Um, speaking on how we as a society fail communities like Garden Heights and others like it, mm -hmm. do you have any hope for a better future in this regard? And how do you think that we can get there? Ah, uh, this is a struggle. <laughs> so, I really, I really, I really wanna say yes, you know, the, the optimistic person in me wants to be like, yes, you know, look at, look at where we've come. You know, I was seeing, <laughs> I was sitting in the, the living room with my uncles the other day and we were watching Little Nas's ex performance on SNL. And my mom was just being like, look where we've come, you know, like in a few years ago, this would have never been acceptable. You yeah. know, it, like, an openly gay black man performing a provocative 
like amazing performance on stage like look where we've come our generation i'm really proud of i think we're gonna do a lot but i'm also worried because i think in this country we have a lot of we're we have a lot of polarism we're extremely polar you know Mm -hmm. and polarized excuse me and i think that's really gonna come up because you know the people i surround myself with are extremely educated you know they're extremely educated, open-minded, we talk, we discuss like this, but people forget that there are those who are not, not what we are, you know, Mm -hmm. they're different people, and I think, I'm not taking it to politics, but I do think that the last presidency we experienced really shows how there are some people that whose opinions we never think about, you know, because we're never actually, <laughs> we never yeah. witness them until they're actually leading the country, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, a little while ago, you were talking about from birth, um, Black children are othered, and I feel like also from birth, there's systemic racism passed mm-hmm. on to white people, and even even people with good intentions, I think, can not be aware that what they're doing is racist or biased towards the white race and I fear that a lot is like are there parts of me that I can't escape like that I've just been taught because of like generational racism that I think gets better with each generation but I also think it's going to take time because maybe with each generation there's a little bit less of that racism passed on so Um. Yeah, and listen, like, you're talking to a Black girl who has been brought up in a predominantly white family. Mm -hmm. Like, there was a lot, (laughs) if you think you, you had some issues or questions or concerns, we all experienced, like, things, you know, like, I didn't realize for the longest time that my family was being racist and that it was rubbing off on me until I realized, you know, like how come grandma, every single time we go into Albany and we happen to go in the ghetto S part, which is really, but how come you lock the doors every single time? Like a black person walks close to her, you know? And I didn't connect it until I connected it. And I was like, damn. (laughs) Oh yeah, exactly. It's those things where you don't even think about it, but then it's like, how much of that is in me? And it's nothing, it's not like, it's not against our families at all. I think it's a very pervasive thing everybody deals with it yeah um at the beginning of the novel when discussing the two distinct identities that coincide with her different communities star says quote there are just some places where it's not enough to be me either version of me have you had experiences that you felt this way oh yeah a hundred percent um so like Especially, I think now, <laughs> I think I'm really happy now because as I've gotten older, I've realized, you know, I did a lot of self-hatred, self-hate, there we go, when I was younger. Uh, I was extremely annoying. I used to actually, when I dreamt, I used to be a white girl with blonde hair, crazy. I know, <laughs> like <laughs> in my dreams and stuff, but I think I've come a really long way, but it really has not impacted me like not feeling like I could fit in you know at academy I just 
I definitely felt a little left out. And I don't know if it's because, well, I do know. I think it was a mixture of, I'm not the most wealthiest person, you know. I live with my single mom and stuff like that. So I think it was really hard to understand and not have disdain towards a community that, you know, almost flaunts money and, you know, and I think I just felt out of place. I felt like the black girl, you know, like I was, I was there when people wanted to be like, have that black friend, but then they're just (laughs) a little dick. Um, Yeah, it was difficult. And then at home life too, it was extremely hard because I remember there was one Thanksgiving dinner where I sat down and I was just looking at my white family and I just like, I started crying. And my mom's like, what is up? And I'm like, damn, you like, you guys will never understand my experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, I had some, I had some difficulties, but at this point in my life, I'm so happy that I am who I am and the experiences I have. Cause I honestly think, I know it sounds corny, but I think they made me really a lot stronger. Yeah. yeah, that's such an inspiring story. And I I definitely relate with you and Star where it feels like you'll never fully fit in. You're yeah. like taking or I don't know, magnifying certain aspects of your personality depending on where you are and yeah. making the other ones smaller. Um and I know that I'll never relate to the race thing, but I think that you explain it really well. And going back to schools. I think sometimes administrations everywhere can kind of um, assist in that othering by making it like a big deal about making a big deal about race. And I really sympathize or I don't know, I forget if it's empathize for something that you also feel. I don't feel this, but I understand. Like I feel compassion towards that. So I, I don't know. I felt kind of the need to acknowledge it. That is a really, like, that what you just brought up, that is, like, a really big, a big thing. I think I was approached by uh, the bald guy in our school. Oh, what's his, what's his wait, name? We won't, not, wait, we won't name him. We won't name him. We'll yeah, we, I was approached by someone. Here yeah. we go. Yeah. <laughs> and there we go. And he was, he was like, so how do we fix what's at Academy right now? Mm. And, like, I, I just don't think we're going to have enough support from a Black community at Academy. I think there's a lot of distrust. And I think there's a lot of uncomfortableness from, you know, being like, how can we fix the race issue? Asking the Black people. It's yeah. difficult. <laughs> I know. And also, like, also, I don't know how old, you were probably like 16 or 17 when you were asked that. Like, that's just not reasonable. They kind of expect, I feel like, you guys to know like you can I feel like you can pinpoint that something is wrong without knowing the root cause or how to fix it yeah so I don't know that's <laughs> we could talk about that all day I feel I like know. um so in Star's scenario do you think that Star's activism throughout the book which forces her to introduce her boyfriend Chris and some of her friends to the Garden Heights community will end up merging her two personalities together or will she forever be hiding between two facades? Um, I don't think, so I think there's a little bit, there could be a little bit of a merge, but I don't think it would be 100% 
merging of the two personalities because I also think that these personas that we create and that she has created somehow also are protection for her or guarding, you know? Yeah. Like, as you said, like, you know, we feel like we never sometimes fit in because we do like, put emphasis on a lot of, on different aspects of her personality. So for like me, I'm a lot more comfortable where I am right now, right? But yeah. there are some things that I'm just not going to do, mm-hmm. you know? And in the perfect world, I would do them. But I know that for my comfort level and for my comfort level and just for my own like safeguard, I would not 100% merge. So I do not think that would happen. Maybe, but I do think she's making, she made leaps and bounds by introducing Chris because it's really important to not, <laughs> for a relationship to not, you know, have such a heavy weighted thing like that. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, for listeners, I'm not sure if I clarified this, but her boyfriend is white. I feel like I need to make that known. <laughs> yeah. That greatly changes the meaning of the relationship. Um, so does splitting ourselves between two identities rob us of any identity at all? I don't know if that question makes sense, but kind of like if you're constantly going back and forth between these two worlds, which one are you? Can you be both? Oh my word, and that's such a good question. I was literally like going to write my senior my college app on this. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I I can't tell you. I've had this is like a crisis of my own. I've had I've been like, mom, am I fake? Like what am I? Because yeah. I <laughs> at school I act one way, at home I act one way, talking to this person I I talk this way, talking to that person, I talk this way. I think, I don't think it robs us because I think we're putting identity into much of a small box when we're talking about it like that. I think even these little like switching of identities is what creates an entire identity and what builds a stronger identity. So I don't think it robs us. I think yeah, I just think that is who you are <laughs> and you have to accept it. And that's part of your identity. I don't think they're individual identities. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really empowering thing to know that you are a combination of all that you say you are. Yeah. Um, and I just think sometimes I can struggle with the balance. Yeah. What I identify, like, I don't know, which facets of myself take up which amounts of my identity. So kind of going on with this idea of the two worlds, one of the many differences between Star's lives in Garden Heights and Williamson Prep is the stark contrast between her friends. At Williamson Prep, Star must endure her friend Haley's racism. Haley says racist things about Kahlo's murder and asks another friend, Maya, who is Chinese, if they eat dogs for Thanksgiving. Star eventually confronts Haley and informs her that her actions were racist, but Haley vehemently denies these claims and refuses to apologize. Why do you think people are loath to admit fault, particularly surrounding race and racism? I think um, the concept of like racist, like a racist is 
even if you are one, I think it's extremely looked down on. Like when you think of the term racist, you think of, you know, you don't think of like a high class individual. You think of, at least in my mind, I think of someone who is like low and dirty almost. Yeah. So I think there's almost a concept of me racist. I can never, you know, that is not me. Like there's definitely a sense of, there's a sense of privilege to the illusion that if one is, um, if one is educated in some ways that they can't be racist. Like there's an illusion that a lot of people I feel like hide behind, you know, and, and they're like, I'm not, there's no way I could be racist because I am me and I am educated. You know, it's like, it's like a sense of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that, hiding or saying refusal I guess is a way to escape apology and accountability um and I also think that a lot of people have a really dramatic kind of like what you were saying um vision of someone who is racist like that I don't know someone who is very clearly racist but the inherent racism or like small acts of racism are very real and I think that they're not given as much attention so um it's pretty troubling <laughs> do you think that yeah. do you think that the character Haley or, or people like her will carry these racist tendencies with them for the rest of their life oh yeah because you know <laughs> I always tell my mom this the type of racist I like this sounds bad <laughs> but the type of racist I like is the one who's flying the confederate flag the don't stop on me flag, the one who's like obviously racist, you know? So I'm like, okay, I can stay away from you, you know? Mm -hmm. You might be not the best for society, but at least I know, you know? At least, at least I know you're obviously going to be doing racist and saying racist things because that is your identity. (laughs) But people like Haley, her name's Haley, right? Yeah, Haley, um, they're almost like, I don't want to say the bigger problem, but they really contribute a lot, you yeah. know, because they're the type of racist and the racism that they present is the type that you sometimes can't pinpoint, you know? Right. And if you do, you get that response. Yeah. Like, how do we ever fix that? At least with the person who's being overtly racist, you can be like, bro, you're racist. And they'll yeah. be like, yeah, I know. But with like someone like that, it's really difficult to be like, that's not correct. Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know. I think that that if there's not accountability or apology, they'll never be able to move on. And I also think that it's particularly like jarring for Star because they were friends. Like you were saying, Star, I feel like the character Star wouldn't become friends who like had a confederate (laughs) or something. But since Haley seems... I don't know, overtly, quote unquote, normal, she's Mm -hmm. safe for Star to become friends with when that's really not the case. And I think that's deeply disappointing. Traumatizing. Like, yeah, for like an adolescent girl, because if she's like, what if all, everyone I know is like this, you know? At least that's, that's how I think. I tend to think very, um, I don't know how to put this. I tend to, yeah like 
I don't know. I think if someone is one way, I assume that everyone else is like, <laughs> which is something that I need to work on. But um, I think that's why the situation with Haley is particularly, particularly disappointing to read about. Yeah. All right. So this novel brings attention to police brutality and inspires action. For any readers unfamiliar with the book, Khalil and Star are unjustifiably pulled over, returning home from a party, and the officer demands Khalil stand outside their vehicle. When the police officer briefly returns to his squad car, Khalil bends to the window to talk to Star, and the police officer, who Star calls 115 in the novel after his badge, shoots Khalil dead. Still, this novel is not necessarily anti-police. Star's beloved uncle is a police officer. Zacher, if you are president or governor or anything like that and could produce sweeping police reform, what would you do? I honestly, I think, so Albany actually does a pretty good job. Like my mom knows this because she works with the mental health region. So she knows and she meets a lot of police officers. Still, obviously we have problems, but it, this is really difficult, you know? Like even reading this, and I don't know if you saw the movie, but I think the movie also did a very good job with this. Um, like there, I don't wanna say I almost felt bad for the cop. I don't, I didn't feel bad for the cop, yeah. but I, I think I understood mm -hmm. because society portrays such a vicious, a vicious view of the black man that it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to justify it, right? I don't want to justify this, but I can also see where the cop is coming from, which sounds crazy, but you know, it's almost a product of society that, yeah. that exact moment happened. It's like society has built up to that explosion. But if I were to reform the police department, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, defund the police. I don't think, I don't think that is the best way to do things. Cause I do think like in this country, we need some sort of law enforcement, law enforcement, you know, cause people do crazy shit. Yeah. But, and then my, my next, my next move would be, well, what about the excessive use of like firearms and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. Cause I know in like a lot of European countries, they use sticks instead of guns. Mm. Like, you know, those like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Almost. yeah, like, but then I'm like, <sighs> that also is tricky because America is such a, a gun-ho country mm -hmm. that you can't expect someone to protect the citizens if they don't also have what potentially, what potentially a harmful situation requires, you know? Yeah. So my next thing is, what can we do? So we can't defund the police. We can't take away their weapons. I think at the end of the day, we need we need to have personality checks, personality testing. You know, I already know they're doing some of this, but like a few months, not a few months ago, maybe it was last year. I don't know. There was um a few blocks away from school actually there was like this awful video this police officer you know they got a call this police officer was just charging at this black man just taking him i thought the black man was gonna die i was so scared 
it was such a depressing video to see. Um, but come to find out that this person had already had, you know, like red flags throughout yeah. their history. Why are we having people who already have had problems, you know, um, or perhaps have trauma from military experience, any experience, why are we having them use guns, you know, <laughs> put them at the desk if they have, if there's some issues, because at that point, it, there's such a danger. So, and I think even if they don't have a red flag, I think there needs to be a lot of like infield training, you know, the police should know the community. I don't want a police officer who is going to be go to a neighborhood that they don't know, you know, yeah. have a police officer. Like I know in New York city, a lot of times you'll see, like, I'll see these, I follow one police officer on Instagram and he makes an effort. He's out there playing basketball with the local youth. You know, he is just, that's what we need. If you're going to have a group of people protect citizens, you need to know the citizens, right. you know? Yeah. So I definitely just like make sure I put my guys through an effort program of getting to know the community, background checks galore. If you have a red flag, we're talking about it. I need to make sure that if your ass gets out on the field, you're not going to attack someone, hurt someone, put me and your entire community in a bad position. So yeah, there'd be a lot. Yeah. Well, I think that's a pretty good plan. <laughs> so you were saying about 115 and how you you understood and I think that that really goes back to the idea we were talking about with racism being embedded from birth um I know in the book Khalil was I think reaching for a hairbrush yeah and the police officer thought it was a gun so I think that just reinforces what we were talking about earlier it's that it's really like a from the day someone is born um if they're white, racism is embedded in them in maybe small ways, maybe big ways. And if they're black or another race, that othering is embedded in them. Yeah. So last question on the law enforcement system thing. Why do you think our law enforcement system is so flawed? Honestly, just look at our country, you know? Think about it. Law enforcement are just people, you know, and at the way our country is built, it's, I still, to this day, I think we're leading, we're not even there yet to, there's going to be, in my mind, there's going to be a breaking point, you know, mm -hmm. and I thought maybe like when the Black Lives Matter movement was really up and George Floyd, I was like, is this the breaking point, you know? Yeah. And there was those riots, you know, I was like, we're getting so close. I don't think it is yet, which is depressing. Yeah. But our country is like, it's like a volcano. You know, you mix a little bit of, first you take your history, you know, you take slavery, <laughs> then you take generational racism. Yeah. And then on top of this, you have you have like societies view of black men and stuff. It just, it's just not. Sorry, now I've lost the question. <laughs> what was your question? You're talking about why is our law enforcement so flawed? Oh yeah, it's as I said, law enforcement is a product of society. Right. That 
honestly, it's depressing, but in order to fix law enforcement, we have to redesign society. And that sounds like a lot, but we're so polarized, this country, you know, there's no unity, you know? Well, you could say, oh, we're Americans. Okay, but the term Americans holds so much, so many different meanings, you know? So at the end of the day, we can't just rely on that term. Oh, we're all Americans, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I see people all the time be like, you know, let's get together because we're Americans, let's unite. I was like, we need a lot more than just that term, yeah. <laughs> you know? We have, yeah. we have so much different experiences and that's where our law enforcement is affected. We really just need, <laughs> like, we need to, I, I don't know, it's, it's, that's, that's difficult. It's gonna be hard. Yeah, you know, on societal reform, you said it seems like so much, and I think it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like it is so much and it is going to take a lot, but I think that it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully that day is coming soon. Yes. Um, the police and the media try to uh, depict Khalil as a drug dealer or gangbanger, in other words, Um, trying to find some kind of justification for his murder. This is not the case. He wasn't really involved in these things. And different online activists make this known. How does the media affect activism? And how would social justice reforms be different without platforms such as Instagram or Twitter? Ooh, okay. So first question was some media. My mind is going fast. How does media affect activism? Okay. Well, media, without media, you can't have activism, right? So the way the media portrayed Khalil here, it, of course it sparked anger because that's not the truth, Yeah, you know? And media definitely is a big influencer because if the media went out, right? And was like, well, the police actually say that they made a big mistake and he probably shouldn't have shot the black guy seven times and mm-hmm. tased him twice. And we're gonna, they said they're gonna go to court. They're gonna have everything that needs to be done. And this man's family were so sorry. If they went out and said stuff like that. Yeah. What is the need for activism? Because <laughs> they're telling the truth. Yeah. And like, we know that we're gonna get something good. And, but they don't, you know, and because of politics, there's so much there, there's so much layered that that's where activism comes from. The fact that something untruthful is being conveyed, someone is not getting the justice they need. So without the media doing wrong stuff, we wouldn't have activism. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about that a lot, particularly from the summer, the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter mm. uh, movement. Like, the world found out about what happened to George Floyd through a video, you know? And I think about if this happened 50 years ago, there is no way that mm. the activism, the protests um, that came out from that would have occurred. Um, but I, I still think that there's a gap between social media, people saying, this happened and we're mad that this happened and we want change and reform coming out of it. Because what happened this summer was huge, but I don't think any real changes have been made. Um, You know, 
there was a Derek Chauvin trial, trial and he was found guilty, but there was no real reform coming. So I don't know how to bridge that gap between social media and change. Yeah, so I think social media is a really big, as you just said, a big tool, you know. Um, I think your George Floyd point was really, it's really important because what, what happens if this had happened 50 years ago, it would have just been another like death, you know? And, but you're right, Em, there's an aspect of just, you know, so social media is not enough, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, so that's where you even get to, okay, so social media is not enough. There's not enough outrage almost then we get to the riots even with the riots and everything I feel like there hasn't been actual reform someone sitting down and being like so my question is what do we have to do like we can what's going to solve this issue is finding people to put in office that are actually going to convey what we need but that is going to take time and that's going to take effort and that's going to take people going door to door, education. And that's gonna also take, you know, close elections. That's gonna take anxiety. There's going to be a lot, but without starting that, without getting people that we want to represent America, right? Yeah. We're gonna have no base. So I think that that is what we're going to have to do. Cause social media is powerful, but social media is not not the end-all be-all device so yeah yeah. (laughs) and I do I do want to say I think that the amount of people um you know acknowledging what happens on social media and trying to learn and looking for resources due to reading about it on like someone's Instagram feed or whatever that's not something to be ignored oh yeah but I do think we're at the point when we can start asking for more and asking for real change because otherwise you're just like yeah we know that this really bad thing happened and we're upset but then nothing happens after that so I think it's time to make that next step yeah 100% and I think I agree like social media is going to help but I think the real change is going to be who who is next going to be in position of power you know we need to know what they're going to be saying, what they're going to be doing. We need to know that these people are going to be like, this is not right. Let's talk about this. Let's sit down and actually have a conversation. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Star testifies in the case, but the jury finds the police officer innocent, which results in the anguish of the community. They take to the streets to protest in some riot. As a reader, how did you feel about this scene? Why do you think the jury found the police officer innocent when he clearly was not? Um, so the book, I was just devastated. Yeah. And like, even when I watched the movie, like I already know what happened in the book. <laughs> I was still like, why am I so devastated? And, and I think the fact is because it's just like a truth of, yeah. like a truth of life, you know, like that is what happens. But the scene is just like so real. I, <laughs> it's so painful too. It obviously happened because as I can go on the spiel again, but the political, social environments 
of this country are just very toxic. And there's an aspect of, we still to this day, like, and am as I'm no race involved, like, even as a female, I think you can relate to this. We still to this day put the white man on the pedestal. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just an aspect where the white man is the, like, the king still. Yeah. And I was talking to my gay uncles, my gunkles, everyone, yes. <laughs> and I, we had this argument because my uncle was like, well, I understand some of your experience because I'm a gay man in America and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yes, but, but you yeah. are a white man in America. You know, you may be gay, but you don't understand everything. Like being a minority, especially a female, even a female is like so different. So I think there's this aspect of putting the white man on the pedestal and yeah, it's just not it. It's an old way of thought and we have to change it somehow. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think that the results of the case (laughs) was due to implicit bias and it's very like you said it's like devastating to read but it's also indicative of um you know what really happens in life so I think I think it had the the trial had to end that way Mm -hmm. um, because I think otherwise it wouldn't be realistic but it was still deeply disappointing I 100% agree. And excuse my phone. I love when people just decide to text at the wrong moments. That's totally fine. No worries. Um, so kind of a last question that we've touched on a little bit. Um, will, we di- will we as a society ever be able to escape our implicit bias around race? And if so, how? I'm going to be honest with you. And some people might say I'm pessimistic, but I think I'm just being real. Yeah. I don't think we will, you know? And it's really depressing, my point of view, I know, but it's like, <laughs> like, we have so much against us, you know? We have so many different opinions, you know? There's always going to be that one person who has who sees another person with the radical ideas and the op- vice versa, you know? Yeah. And it's also like, do we have the time, you know? Yeah. And I'm not even talking about like, I'm talking about like, the, like there's a whole nother problem. The oceans are dying, yeah. you know? <laughs> like, like, like forget about, forget about, you know, changing people's ideas. You know, we have a slight larger issue. Do we have enough time on this actual planet, you know, to fix this? And I honestly don't think we do. And I know it's a depressing point of view, but I just honestly think that's how it is. So, yeah. (laughs) I I think you're spot on with that because I was going to say, I think like day by day, people chip away at this like embedded racism that they have in themselves or I hope I hope some people do Mm -hmm. Um, but that's such a slow change that I think by the time we get there it's not gonna be soon enough you know Um, so that's deeply concerning but um I think I don't know like it seems kind of 
a depressing note to end on, even though if it is true. So I think I would just say for any listeners who want to better themselves, I think these types of discussions, listening to these types of discussions, reading everything that you can and trying to be an ally the best that you can and learning the way to do that is like the only way to go. So I definitely don't think it's worth like giving up. Oh, yes. I think definitely not. We make yeah. it the best that we can. Yeah. You know, like, you, we have to keep fighting. You know, just because I have that depressing point of view doesn't mean that I'm not going to keep fighting because that is what is right to do, you know? Right. So, yeah. And that's the only way we can combat all that we're going up against right now. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think that concludes our episode for today. Thank you so much, Zacher, for taking time to chat with me. I deeply enjoyed this discussion. And thank you, listeners, for your compassion and empathy while listening to this conversation. Thank you, Em.